Hello and welcome to the Demographic Cast. Uh, this week I'm joined again by Jack Street, as always, um, and by Jibran Raja. Uh, how are you both doing today? Great, thanks. Doing great. Thank you. Good, good. How are you, Brett? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Sort of feeling the lo- the lockdown a bit more recently, but uh, yeah. not bad. Um, Jibran here is a is a philosophy and politics student at uh, and King's economics College. and economics student at King's College. Sorry, I missed that one out. Um, we're just going to sort of talk about the as a main topic today. We're going to talk about the uh, leaked Labour report on internal strategy that sort of stated that they would be making use of the flag, veterans, and dressing smartly, or that they should be in the future. Um, to win back voters in the red wall area that they lost in the last election. Um, how did you guys feel about hearing about this? Um, were there any initial reactions? Jibran, do you want to go ahead? I don't know if you had any sort of initial thoughts. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, um, this issue of patriotism has always been um, pretty central to, I think, uh, Labour Party. Not a what people in the Labour Party think, uh, especially um, after this election um, in, the, in what you call the Red Wall uh, seats, where people are considered to be more almost patriotic or um, more nationalistic. Even. Um, maybe that's linked to them voting for Brexit in greater numbers. But uh, I think that that would be the rationale behind um, using this uh, this idea of uh, patriotism and uh, nationalism to, to win back these voters. Um, that was my primary um, reaction to it anyways, but uh, I think um, also there's this overall prevailing image of the Labour Party as maybe being anti-patriotic, which is uh, formed during the um, Corbyn years. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I, I, do, I, do, I do think they have some some also points. Um, I was actually trying to find a picture of uh, Corbyn in front of the um, Union flag. I couldn't find it. Any. That's not to say I, um, I'm um, I what you call those people who are obsessed with uh, flags and imagery and things like that. But I think uh, having a sense of patriotic uh, symbol can be helpful um, to an extent. Um, but I think that um, I think that to an extent the debate is focusing too much on, on um, symbolry as well, and there, there needs to be greater focus on. Um, Natural issues, which I think has been not enough of uh, during Keir Starmer's leadership so far. Yeah, I'd agree, and that was my initial uh, thoughts on on this. And it, it always is usually. I, 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 I mean, you know, we've spoken about patriotism on the show before. I'm incredibly, I am, I'm, sort of pr- I am proud to to come from this country. I would say that I am patriotic, but part of my patriotism is about wanting this country to be better that is where my patriotism is rooted you know it's being proud of of uh, the opportunities that people have here the opportunities that, that many people from around the world are given when they come to this country but also wanting to make sure that life for people that that live here um grow up here want to come here is as good as it possibly can be and a lot of that is about acknowledging our shortcomings acknowledging our fault, faults and working towards fixing those just sticking a flag in the background does not mean that you love the country more than somebody else wearing a suit doesn't mean that you love the country more than somebody else you know these things are symbolistic and whilst they have importance in politics and we can all understand that um i think that you're you're right when you say 
what really needs to happen and the way that the Labour Party, in my view, can use patriotism to their advantage is by putting forward a vision for the future as to what the country would look like under a Labour government. The way that you're going to win back the trust of red wall, so, so-called red wall voters, is by telling them how you're going to improve their lives, not by just sticking a flag in your living room that's only, that only goes up when you do an interview, because many people can see through that. Um, I don't think it, you know, that really is a long-term, a long-term strategy. And I think some of the reading that I did in preparation for this podcast, a lot of the idea that I that kept coming up in my, my mind was there has to be an element of authenticity in, in your patriotism. And it, neither the government nor the opposition seems to necessarily have that at the moment. In the interviews um, on this, this report that, that I saw, it was very much that, you know, you could imagine the opposition or the leadership sitting around a table saying, uh, how can we manufacture some kind of, of patriotism? How can we use this to our advantage? How can we, we make this, how can we use this to make us look better? And really what you need to be selling is uh, we want to be in government because we want to improve the country. And that's not what I think has, has you know, been clearly portrayed because they haven't spoken about policy enough. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, shouldn't patriotism come from what's been achieved or, or what's been, uh, yeah, what the country succeeded in rather than it driving success? So, because I think something that this uh, leak also revealed was that um, a lot of voters don't know what the Labour Party stands for because of the lack of uh, policy and the, the fact that even though people are favourable towards Keir Starmer, he they do also see him as sort of sitting on the fence on a lot of um, a lot of topics. So, is this the right strategy, really, for the Labour Party? I think, from their point of view, and Gibran, I don't know what you think about this. You raised the Corbyn sort of legacy. There is this feeling within the Labour Party, in my opinion, that there needs to be a complete clean break from that. Uh, time and that period and Starmer wants to remove himself from Corbyn so in the next election there's no mention of, of Jeremy Corbyn whatsoever because the last thing the Labour Party wants to be doing like it has done for so long is being held to account for things that weren't done under the current leadership so Ed Miliband um, had to had to do it because uh, because of 2008 um, it's been it was thrown around under Jeremy Corbyn as well now Jeremy Corbyn's gone, Keir Starmer's going to have to deal with uh, the, the Corbyn legacy and he wants to cut himself off from, from that as much as possible. Their thinking is, let's make ourselves appear completely opposite to, to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and what I think that whilst I think there's something like that needs to be done, if you do that too much and if you focus on that too much, you will just kind of end up towing the government line a bit a bit too often. And I think that's what has often been done under other the coronavirus i think that's what is often done in interviews where there's this sort of sense of vagueness that that occurs um so i think i think that's important i think they do need to do that i think you do need to appear electable but you also need to sort of sell something in terms of in terms of policy too yeah i think almost trying to sell the sort of uh, american americanized style of politics where you've got this uh, flag uh, even even the most left-wing to the most right-wing politicians have flags behind them. Uh, but I, I don't think it's as, it's as much of a symbol in this country. Um, and as, I, I think uh, there's a, there's a YouGov uh, poll that came out uh, a couple of days ago, and they said only around 
52% of um, Labour voters in the last election had a very positive opinion. People who had um, waved the union flag, um, and it was even less for the St. Wilbur's yeah. flag. Uh, and I, I think that was compared to in the mid 70s for the Conservative Party. Um, so if they're trying to consolidate uh, Labour Party vote, I don't think that's it. Um, I think it's more to do with trying, trying to appeal to those people who are Tory, um, especially in the North. Um, there are there are other um, there are other dangers um, to it. For example, it might not be as appealing to younger voters or voters in the um, sort of southern or um, university towns. I don't know. My anecdotal experience, anyways, has been there sort of immense uh, flag waving. Sort of areas. Um, but, um, overall, I think yeah, it's, it's good to have a sense of uh, national identity and national purpose. But as as um, as sort of Jack mentioned, um, there needs to be a sort of vision that goes with that. Um, uh, when um, Rebecca Long Bailey was running for for leadership, she mentioned that um, progressive patriotism, and how that's. Um, uh, I thought that was generally actually a good idea. Mm. Thinking about how. Um, I could link the idea of uh, left-wing policies um, and those are raising the um, living standards of every every um, British person. Yeah. And that links to the idea of, of a vision of patriotism uh, rather than um, just having a sort of flag in the background um, <laughs> or, you know, a, a sort of, um, like, what the Tories, are, Tories are most be doing it more as well um, after Brexit. Before Brexit, I didn't even notice that much. And you're seeing these ministers um, are having interviews with flags in the background all the time. Um, I think it's a definite um, attempt to um, hone in on that uh, sort of post-Brexit um, feelings of nationalism. And yeah. British except exceptionalism. Yeah. How long that's going to last, especially with uh, in the long term, anyways, uh, I'm more doubtful. Yeah, I think that kind of nationalism has crept into the, the discourse a lot more, sort of uh, a kind of more populist nationalism, where, you know, I can't remember who it was precisely who, who said this, but um, talking about the, the, the vaccine and the vaccine being the best vaccine because it was the British vaccine. Obviously, Gavin Williamson. Gavin Williamson, Gavin Williamson. Yeah, complete nonsense. Obviously, but that would strike a chord with some people. There were sort of instances of people asked, saying that they didn't want any vaccine apart from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, so it, for some people that will chime well. But the thing that, in my opinion, the Labour Party have to remember is that you're not going to be able to appeal to everybody. There are going to be sections of the country who you just won't, who just won't vote for you. You will not be able to win their vote, and that's okay but you need to sell something. It, whatever kind of brand of, of um, uh, patriotism they, they want to attach, it has to be meaningful and it has to be their own and it has to be authentic. And I think that that's what they need to focus on. Um, and uh, that needs to be rooted in, in how you're going to make the country better. Um, and that, that should be the, the main focus, I think. Uh, I think there's a danger of Keir uh, not defending too much of this um establishment politician that was the whole cause of Brexit in the first place. Um, it's a, if, if you begin to see him sort of in, inauthentic, um, 
double faced. Um, I think if you're trying to appeal to everyone in the way they want to, uh, in the, the way they want to be, um, you know, what they want to see, then I, th- I think that comes across as two faced, sort of like at, on one hand mm-hmm. going for very left wing policies. Yeah. And sort of Lefting agenda, and on, on the other hand, sort of trying to outflank Tories on other on on other things. But actually, I, I don't think I've even been seeing enough of the sort of lefting agenda from Pierre Starmer yeah. um, himself. Um, uh, there's actually a danger that we're going to start to be outflanked by the Tories on economic issues, uh, like uh, Rishi Sunak announced uh, the other day that he wanted to raise um, taxes on. Uh, Amazon and other such companies, which made excess profits during the coronavirus pandemic, and uh, those, those are the sort of things that even some people in the Labour Party are afraid to discuss. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that we need we need to make sure that, that sort of outflanking doesn't. Yeah, I agree. Brett, yeah. something you've mentioned yeah. is is that lack of sort of uh, uh, energy from the Labour Party and the yeah. passion behind yeah. you know, what they want to see from the country and you've said often to me that that's something that has frustrated you yeah for sure and I, I definitely feel like uh, although I had hope I suppose to or I was interested to see what Keir Starmer brought to the leadership back at the beginning well, when he was elected um, I now I just find myself getting a bit bored when I listen to him and a bit it's just not particularly engaging and it's not like you say passionate it's it's always the same sort of tone um He's saying the right things, but I don't know if he's convincing enough. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up was that I, th- I, when I, without the policy, um, without them stating where they stand on policy, to me, them, this leaked document coming out, saying uh, with the the quote being "Make use of the flag, veterans, and dressing smartly," sounds a little bit condescending, I think, to the voters that they would supposedly be trying to win back with that. Because they're saying it, maybe they're not saying, but it, to me it seems like uh, the way I interpret it is that the a little bit of flag waving will easily get the those votes back on side. They don't really nearly really need to to hear what policies the Labour Party stand for. But just you know, as long as we wave a, a Union Jack in front of them, they'll they'll quickly switch side. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, but to me it sounds like it's pretty. It, it, it feels like it, it could be offensive. If, I think. if if I was in the Conservative Party, that's how I how I would be spinning it, yeah. you know, and that's how yeah. I I think it's it's good to think about uh, things in those terms, you know, when, when the government make an announcement, you know, how would how's the opposition going to um, interpret that, and vice versa. And if I was in the Conservative Party, that's exactly what I would be saying. Saying yeah. they don't, yeah. Labour have no idea, no ideas to, on how to take this country forward. They they haven't got any policy suggestions. We're tackling the coronavirus. We're ta- you know all the the spin, um, and they think a little bit of flag waving, like you say, uh, or putting a flag behind them in an interview is going to win your vote. Well, it won't. And you know we're the ones who have the 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 proper agenda for how to take the country forward. And that's the when you don't fill the air with policy or you don't say something substantial, you leave a vacuum. Um, and then you're you're allowing the the other party or the media to fill that agenda for you, and that's where, where the Labour Party's going wrong currently, um, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, and especially since Keir um, Starmer sort of only moon and starting to level off now, uh, and especially in the run up to these uh, local elections that are coming up, uh, there needs to be 
sort of uh, there's a real need for him to start announcing um, more on policy. Um, because I think now most people have, have gotten to know him at least to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there's no there's none of that sort of like we don't know who he is sort of thing left. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now he needs to start making more of a uh, more of a impact on what he actually stands for. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not. I'm not actually as critical of, of Keir Starmer as his political views as someone yeah, the left might be, as uh, considering what he's sort of been standing for before he even um, became an MP. I'm, I'm more convinced that he's someone who's on the left and wants to try and win an election. About the same time, I say trying to be sort of like, um, like, sort of like not not having this sort of uh, clear agenda is, is making him seem like he's someone who's one of those establishment politicians yeah. who can't really, uh, can't really tell what they stand for, uh, what Tony Benn uh, called um, weather veins, right? Uh, they just go with the, go with the flow uh, <laughs> of uh, wherever, wherever the political winds flow rather than the signposts. And people like people who are, have been signposts in uh, British politics, even those who I disagree with, like uh, Nigel Farage, have no doubt been more successful than some of the ones who have been wishy-washy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think people respect that. Uh, I think when a politician is up front and they tell you how they feel and puts their... Um, flag so to speak in the ground and you know where they stand uh, that's respected by voters because you know the last thing i think what the british people hate most about politicians is not knowing what they're doing not knowing what what they stand for thinking that they have this sort of shady two-faced kind of approach to politics say one thing do another when you, you see someone they've got integrity um i think you can respect that in terms of you know knowing what their view is knowing what their position is like one thing that I've, I always say about Margaret Thatcher was, for the most part, at least you knew what she stood for. You may completely disagree with her politics, which I do, um, and think she was terrible for the country, which I do. But you always, she was always upfront about what she wanted. She was always upfront about how she felt, and you have to respect that. I think. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know, that's that's what that's where I think the Keir Starmer needs to work on. And I think there's so much scope for this because the government is doing such a terrible job with so much of running the country at the moment that the Labour Party will never have this opportunity again. Um, you know, if they cock the next election up, I, I have no, I have nothing else to say, to be honest. Do you think there's been renewed respect for people who, for those kind of politicians who do speak or express their feelings more because of what the sort of political state of the country um, back at the beginning of this last decade, when we had that, that election between Clegg, Miliband and Cameron, who are all different sides of the same coin and didn't really have much passion between them either um do you think it stems from that i think it goes much further than that even, uh, sure, it goes sure. back to uh, um 19 and it goes back to the post that's uh, right period right even even tony blair and uh, his uh, conservative and liberal uh opponents in the election are not that dissimilar in terms of policy mm-hmm. uh, in fact tony mm-hmm. blair um, continued lots of uh, continued lots of um, previous conservative governments' economic policies, at least for a while, and then moved on um, a little bit later on. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, I agree that there's, there's 
I think I think the Corbyn thing was not necessarily to do with him being too left wing in terms of policy. I think the policies themselves were, were popular. It's more of a way a Corbyn as a person was uh, yeah. portrayed yeah. Uh, yeah. how people thought of him. Um, and uh, with regards to, to Brexit, whether Brexit caused the last election to peace or whether it was Corbyn's policies or Corbyn himself, um, I think that's actually um, due to interlinked because people thought of Corbyn as incompetent in terms of how he was uh, how he was approaching Brexit um, and other issues, in fact, um, because there was not enough clarity and those like, last-minute policies sort of popped up and people weren't sure what Labour stood for, which is what, the people, which is what we're worried about now as well. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the main thing is that there needs to be clarity yeah. on these policies and also uh, a, and, uh, a clear agenda rather than uh, in, going more towards the centre uh, just because we think that works in the past. Whereas the political centre ground has, has noticeably shifted um, since, um, since Brexit, if not before that. Yeah, and it was, that's a really interesting point, I think, and it's something that was raised last week when we spoke to Vicky Gill, was that if you talk about these policies now, there's time for them to get into the, the consciousness of the country and for them to be ingrained in the discourse. And that's one thing, you know, that we, we mentioned the broadband communism, um, you know, stuff that was, was going on during the last election, which now has actually turned out to be what would have been a really sensible and useful policy for, for what we'd be facing or for what we are facing at the moment, um, because that was announced fairly late towards the end of the election. First of all, you don't have enough time to really explain what the policy means. You maybe don't even have enough time to clarify that policy within your own party. So when different uh, politicians are out there trying to sell the idea, they're selling it in different ways. But also, you don't have the opportunity down the line to go, this policy that we've been calling for for three years, four years, would be perfect now. We wouldn't be facing all these problems. And you don't get to wave that sort of in the in the in the government's face, and uh, when there are so many downfalls at the moment, if Keir Starmer would have published uh, how he would deal with the coronavirus crisis straight away as soon as the crisis started to to hit, or as soon as he won the the the, the leadership election, all throughout the pandemic, he would be able to say, if we were in government, this is what we would be doing, instead of leaving it a day or two days before the government made an announcement and just saying what they were going to announce two days before, it doesn't have the same impact. Um, so I think getting ahead of the curve is really important. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to bring up the um, the Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, uh, interview on LBC the other day where she um, sort of, she, she accidentally admitted that this leaked document was spin. <laughs> And then quickly backtracked on it when uh, I think it was Nick Ferrari questioned her on it. But doesn't I mean that then it also plays into the fact that it's sort of that it's quite condescending and a little bit offensive to the people that they're trying to sway with this because they're admitted admitting that it's a basically propaganda. Um, do you? Uh, I mean, I I also want to sort of say, do you think that it? it in that sort of context, does the Labour Party stand a chance at really winning that patriotic debate between them and the Conservative Party? Because the Conservative Party already uses that tactic, um, and I think it's probably arguable that they uh, that tactic has served them quite well over the last couple of years. 
in the various elections that we've had. Um, but what would you, what do you think? Do you agree? Do you what do you do you think that the this debate between about patriotism is likely to go well for for the Labour Party if they're faced up against a Conservative Party in it? No, I don't think there's any chance of Labour outflanking Conservatives on their patriotism. It's like uh, it's, there's no chance that the Conservatives would be more trusted on the NHS during an election. Uh, the economy is sort of 50 50 in terms of being about what's happened. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, not, there's not much chance that um, massive national tribes and things like that. Mm-hmm. But Labour Party will be seen as more, seen as more patriotic. I think I think the the um, reasoning is that some people were more inclined to vote Labour, but they just thought that they were just too <laughs> too unpatriotic. So there needs to be a bit, a bit of uh, <laughs> a bit of patriotism there to, mm-hmm. to uh, satisfy them. But uh, overall, uh, yeah, I would disagree with that. Yeah, I, uh, I I I agree with you. I think the ch- the choice of the word spin was was. Uh, both telling and unfortunate um, and like we were talking before about authenticity when you call something spin on morning radio uh, something that you think you're, you're trying to sell as being really important it doesn't sound great um, you know like I say you can imagine them sat around a table in a, a shadow cabinet meeting saying you know part of our spin is going to be get the flags out and you know make sure you dress nicely whatever um, and I, I think that that's it can be useful but you're not going to outflank the conservatives in this this area because um, you're, you're just not seen in the same way. It's just not seen in the the Labour Party and the Conservative Party aren't seen in the same way in terms of patriotism. So I think you have to sell your own brand, and that comes from offering up an alternative vision for the for the country and saying, you know, we want this country to be a place where people are proud of. Because many people, I, I don't think, genu- genuinely feel super proud of uh, the position that the country's in at the moment, and they're the sorts of people that you have to be. Uh, winning back and, and, and saying we want to make this country um, a place where people are proud of and you know we haven't spoken about the union and, and the possible Scottish indep- possible Scottish independence nationalism rising in 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 Wales um, obviously Brexit Brexit's impact um, on those nations and if the Labour Party wants to get into power you have to you have to prove in my opinion to voters in those in those nations that um, a, the Labour Party, a, a Labour government, is worth keeping the union together for, um, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think that uh, that is only that that's not done by putting a union jack behind you. That's done by saying this is how we're going to tangibly improve your life, um, and that yeah. can't that can't happen until policies are announced. Really, so you know we're left in limbo. Um, I, yeah. I, I think I think Brett, you're the sort of you're the sort of individual. You're not a member of the Labour Party. I am Gibran. You are you're a member of the Labour Party, right? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, Brett, you are the sort of person that the Labour Party needs to be targeting. Um, and I mm. know they're not going to do that by just putting a union flag <laughs> behind them. Uh, they need to offer not. something right. up. Um, yeah. And it frustrates me when, you know, like when we have these conversations and you're not convinced, that frustrates me because you should be the sort of, the sort of voter that, that is pretty certain on who they're going to vote for when there's so little options in the country. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's frustrating. Jibran, I... something... I... Sorry, go ahead, Brett. I, well, no, go ahead if you wanted well, to ask I was going to say, something I wanted to ask you, Gibran, was what do you think the the levelling out in the polls, do you think that the, the reason behind that is is mainly because of 
people's disappointment in the government? Do you think the pandemic's had a big part of that? Or do you think that the new leadership has, has sort of done a good job in, in closing that gap themselves? Uh, it's, it's a bit of both, really, because there's always um, going to be a bit of a pull boost uh, when you get a new leader, um, because people see them as sort of fresh new sort of start. Sure. Um, immediately more people are going to be more attracted to his drama uh, inherently because of his um, different physical stance on various matters, um, as opposed to under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and after, yeah, under. But at the same time, there's also an effect, there's been effects of the um, of the government uh, and the handling of the coronavirus has obviously had a bit of a, um, a dip, if I remember correctly, uh, around the time of Corbyn was leaving office, before it was around nearer to 50% for the Conservatives and around 25 to 30% for Labour, mm. and now it's around 40 each. So there's obviously been a bit of a dip for Conservatives and uh, I mean, I think the most, uh, the, the greatest rise for Labour has not come from the Conservatives, but it's come from uh, Liberal Democrats and other such uh, parties which, which have um, now gone to Labour because of, um, because they see Keir Starmer sort of like uh, champion remain. And, you know. So I think the, the largest um, challenge now for Labour is to win over voters from the uh, Conservatives. Um, I think some, some, um, some good work has been done, for example, I've been seeing um, data which shows that most of the red wall seats which went conservative last time will most likely come back um, to Labour with that data is a couple of months old. Um, so I'm not sure, it's, it's still a while left to go. Um, if if, yeah. if you ask me if you was going to win the next election now, I'd probably say no. Labour would come out mm. as the largest party by, then, by that time. Just, just because after two or three election cycles, people get tired of them. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, more than anything. Yeah. Uh, but I think we should we should be aiming for for more than that. Not having to yeah. um, rely on the um, having to rely on the SNP for them. That'd be very toxic in the long term. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah. Um, I was going to say that I'm a bit worried i suppose with if this is the way the labor party is going in terms of their strategy i'm worried about how politic how british politics um where it goes from here because i don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that sort of the nationalist sentiment over the last uh decade has has only really furthered divisions um in our country um i saw that with brexit i think pretty um pretty adamantly um I'm worried that if the debate turns to who can wave the British flag the highest, then we are only going to uh, stray further away from constructive debate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we probably will, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, debate's not particularly constructive at the moment anyway, and uh, it's particularly... Gibran, uh, uh, I'm sure you sort of are aware of this also debate in the Labour Party is in the bin you know, for the most part that there is very little constructive policy debate from within the Labour Party particularly in young Labour um, and it's something that, that really frustrates me and something that I've tried to push um, for a long time is 
uh, you know, in, in, in so many on so many different levels, is having constructive debate within the Labour Party. Uh, Labour groups that are focused on pushing forward different kinds of policy. Um, because I think ultimately you don't unify a party by talking about unity, really. You, you unify a party by giving people something to get behind. So uh, that's, that's, that, that doesn't help. The way that the, the country's being run currently and the kind of messaging from the government um, doesn't help either. So there's lots of, it's very easy, the, the environment for conversation is it's very toxic and I think it's easy for people to fall into those divides. Um, so like Gibran was saying, the Labour Party has to lead by example and it's not good enough just to go, well, at some point we'll get back into power because people will just get tired of, of the Conservatives. You know, that, that, that really isn't good enough from the second biggest party in the country. Um, and, and, you know, relying on the SNP, again, I, I agree with you, I think it's a, a really bad idea. Um, you know, in terms of forming sort of a, a non, any non-aggression pacts or any kind of alliances, or if it comes to uh, striking coalitions to get into power, um, so there's a lot. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done in terms of like detoxifying conversation and debate, and and that that has to be done by giving people something to get behind. I think. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, uh, should we, we move? Yeah, we, Sorry, I was going to say, we stress this point a lot, like, you know, talking about policy and, and having constructive conversation and debate. And I think it's, it is important to, to stress that. Um, and yeah. the reason that I think we go over it so much is because there are so little, so few outlets doing that. There are so few, uh, and we, you know, we always try and focus our conversations around policy issues. And I think when it's so easy to fall into that that debate we were talking again to vicky last week about how easy it is to um read a headline and get really angry without reading behind the the story and you know i think one of the current events we're going to talk about i did i did that um so it's you know it's it's i think we have to keep repeating that that you we, you got to look at these things from a constructive point of view and try and you know humanize conversation humanize debate yeah it's disappointing to me though that that seeing if this these if the Labour Party goes the way that it supposedly is, is saying it will through this leaked document, I it just it, it, it disappoints me that the it's almost playing into the 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 anti debate. Um, it's like it's not it's not creating conversation. It's not creating debate really. It's not like you say proposing like we've talked about proposing new new uh, policies. It's all just about who can shout the loudest and that's really disappointing specifically coming from us because we're trying to promote that um so to see that the two biggest parties in this country aren't really it's just i, I find that disappointing um so current events the first topic that we're going to discuss is uh on the the several headlines that have sort of uh, appeared over the last few days uh, featuring the queen and uh her supposed um or the guardian apparently supposedly discovered that she um that she got to think make sure that i word it right they 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 did an investigation into the queen's consent um which is a, a process that's existed for for decades um and it's only it, it it's a process that requires any legislation that will affect the royal family and the queen um, to receive consent from the Queen for it to go ahead. She... I don't believe that a monarch has not provided consent for centuries. So she's never not provided consent, basically. 
it's just one of those again one of those things to sort of suggest that she has power when really she probably doesn't um now exactly yeah now so apparently back in the 70s the queen uh, as found by the guardian the queen lobbied for a change in law that would keep her wealth private um and it the article suggests that because she was approached with this legislation that she had to give consent on she was uh made aware of the fact that this law would supposedly make her wealth public knowledge and so she sent lawyers to go and lobby for this law to be changed and it was apparently successfully changed um and her wealth was kept private um now on top of that um, an article in the BBC then also stated uh, it sort of it quoted the palace's response. Uh, I believe their response was something simple like the queen's the queen's consent is always granted where requested, without really acknowledging what um, the Guardian had had published. Um, on top of this, recent another uh, article came out saying that the queen and the treasury have recently auctioned off a huge part of offshore uh, land. I don't know if it's counted as land, if it's under the water, but plot areas. Um, they've been auctioning them off to energy companies, and supposedly it would earn the Queen um, about £879 million a year for the next decade. Um, I was sort of quite shocked reading all this, because I thought that... Well, for starters, I, I, I don't didn't really know much about it, so I sort of assumed that the Queen's wealth and the royal family's wealth would be public knowledge anyway so i was surprised to know that it's not um and also and then i'm also surprised at the fact that the queen has the ability to sell off such uh huge portions of land for so much money um and retain quite a large portion of it so this is where what you said a minute ago jack sort of comes up right because you sent me a message earlier sort of showing me where how the <laughs> where the money goes that the queen receives from her estates so it goes into the treasury and then they send back to the queen 15 to 25 percent of what was already earned so like you so it doesn't yeah like you i read that i read that story and i think the guardian had had done this investigation had unearthed this, this information and had written it in a way probably to rile people up um uh, and I, I read it like you, and, and was automatically annoyed by the story. Um, you know, kind of thinking this is outrageous. Then did a bit more digging and kind of uh, tried to approach things from a more level-headed point of view. And this, this for for, for years, like we're talking hundreds of years, the the crown has has owned lots of land, obviously, and it. it in, in the 60s, it was determined that uh, the, gov- the government would be responsible for uh, sort of deciding how that was going to be used. And then a proportion of that money um, that was raised was going to would, would go to the, the, the sovereign. And I think in 2004, a uh, new, uh, new law was passed by uh, under, under Tony Blair that meant that this land that the, was owned, this offshore land... Um, would be run and, and kept by the Crown Estate and the Crown Estate would be responsible for divvying out how that land would be used. So obviously a, lo- a lot of that land is is on the um, the East Coast 
um, which is really ripe for offshore renewable energy. Um, they own uh, the, the land where some of the biggest uh, offshore developments are currently being planned, uh, and also um, along the, uh, the Irish Channel, where uh, it's sort of ripe for tidal. Um, tidal power, which is a, a new emerging energy source. So there's a lot of money to be made from from these um, from these plots, and they're being leased. I think my dad, who's who works in renewable energies, said that they're leased for about 50 years to companies, um, uh, uh, for a lot of money, of course, because the offshore industry in the UK is one of the best in the world. People want to do um, work here. Often that is, you know, foreign companies. Uh, coming and purchasing that land and then building offshore arrays or floating wind arrays but um, I, I, I'm not so mad after reading that story and seeing 15 to 25% of that money then ends up going to um, the crown which covers costs for things like uh, refurbishment and living arrangements and travel and then the rest of the, the money that the the, uh, the crown makes is from sort of private wealth which is it's not available to for, for people to see how, how much they earn or whatever. So I wasn't as frustrated after finding out how this works. I think it's actually quite a good way of setting up this system. Um, it's obviously still a lot of money. So if you were to argue, you know, 15 or 25% of whatever it ends up being, um, sort of 8 billion quid over however much, however many years, 10 years, um, it's still too much, um, then fair enough. I'm up to having that debate. I could see that that would probably be too, still be too much money. But... Um, insofar as how as far as I can see this legislation is set up it, it seems like a fair way of, of doing things it's actually quite a com complex sort of historical precedent that has been set um, and it's very difficult to, to work around that and, unless you say the crown no longer we don't want the crown to, to any longer have ownership of, of this land and then you you know go into sort of uh, dodgy constitutional territory on a key based on, on based on the fact that the only loss of wealth is, is a bit faulty, um, considering that they often bring in the loss of a lot more money than they actually cost. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a, a, a much stronger argument would be um, maybe based on, on democracy and you know, the fact that everyone um, should, have, should have the ability to um, grab a go at becoming the head of state in this country. Uh, which is a much more sort of like political argument rather than an economic one. Um, the, the 15 to 25 percent I was reading that as well uh, surprised me. Uh, yeah, that's um, such such as um, uh, that, that actually a lot of that money just goes to the treasury. Yeah, it doesn't go, doesn't go back to the, to the, uh, the queen. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't feel like the monarchy is, is under threat in this country for at least a couple of generations. Um, especially, um, I think once um, once Charles Thompson um, might be a bit of like he's more it's more likely to get involved in political debates uh, than the Queen is. Uh, I don't know if you've watched The Crown, but that's, uh, of course, I don't know how accurate that is. <laughs> but, uh, he's been uh, he's been involved in that for a while. It's a documentary, um, isn't it? Crown documentary entertainment. Know how how you uh, well you know it's true or not, but uh, I, th I think that I think that Prince William as well is is pretty respected. Uh, so at least for a couple of generations, the yeah, uh, he should survive. 
Um, but the monarchy is more likely to survive than the union is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, with all stories about like with the monarchy, I think it's easy to get up in arms, especially when it comes to money. And um, I, I do agree with you. I'm not for the abolition of, of the monarchy. Um, I have questions as to how much money they have where that money goes you know sort of what extended family members are being supported with taxpayer um taxpayer money you know um however like you say there is um uh, i think both political and economic arguments for the the remaining of the monarchy like the some of the most um flourishing countries in the world in terms of uh when, when you're looking at sort of gini coefficient and happiness education um, economic wealth of citizens are uh, uh, sort of constitutional monarchies, de democratic societies with monarchies. So there is there is definitely the case for um, that being the best the best way to, to to go forward in terms of us, like especially post Brexit, um, and and therefore would I would argue that, that that sort of reforming and reforming constitutionally reforming the country but keeping the monarchy in place would be the best way to go. Um, and I, I think that Guardian article actually was was not particularly well written in terms of giving the full picture um but uh, they're, they're they're earning a lot of money off this i think it doubles the the queen's wealth right am i am i right in saying that brett that was the, the yeah i wealth. think so yeah it's that. a hell of a lot of money it's a hell of a lot of money um but somebody you know most of that's going to the treasury somebody needs to be involved the crowd estate actually do a fantastic job of um handing out these contracts to to offshore energy companies um and uh, somebody needs to be at the forefront of pushing the, the renewable energy industry forward. It's better than it does. And the thing that annoyed me the most was that uh, BP were one of the country, uh, companies who were given the, some of the rights to uh, build offshore arrays um, and look at emerging renewable technologies in these areas. I personally don't think that those should be the companies that are um, first and foremost considered. I think we need to be... Uh, um, looking at, at players that have been in the industry for a longer time, I think that uh, supporting emerging British companies in this area is really important. BP don't do that when uh, looking at materials and and um, infrastructure along the supply chain. So I think that's frustrating. Uh, I don't like the the sort of greenwashing of the companies who have contributed the most, overwhelmingly the most, to the climate crisis. So that would be where my frustration would come from. Um, in terms of how the the, mm. the these um, contracts were put out to tender, but insofar as the, the crown estate's role, I actually think it's a pretty good system. And I did expect myself when you first raised the story to be defending the monarchy, but you know. <laughs> See, it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I don't. I think if we're arguing and we have been arguing that people shouldn't have so much wealth shouldn't be making billions of pounds or, or dollars, then it applies to the monarchy. And 15 to 25% of 9 billion, which is the amount that they'd make over 10 years, is still a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> and so it makes me really wonder how, if, uh, for starters, if the Queen should have that much money anyway, should have that much wealth, or the royal family as a whole. Um, I don't also think that it's right if they're making that amount of money for taxpayers to be contributing to their allowance really 
because they can support themselves if that they have that amount of money but surely how, how much is the taxpayer actually contributing to it, it's contributing to them or in the year or in the 2018 to 2019 term the taxpayer spent 67 million pounds on the royal family which was an increase from the year before on by 41% but that's in, that's including the crown estate money which that's isn't the, technically what do you mean that's included isn't the technically taxpayer money that's money that's given by the treasury to the this was, back to the crown this was directly from taxpayers this is not the money that's made that's sent to the treasury and then sent back as a grant to the to are the, you sure i'm pretty sure yeah i'd need to find the right. source again, the, what i saw was that it was more the number was closer to about 20 million pounds which is still a lot of money it's still a lot of money and i think that the, the crown could probably be self-reliant um especially considering how much money they're earning off, of, yeah. off of you know those sales but i thought that 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 the 15 to 25 percent that the treasury puts back into the crown was actually the majority of the money that it it, get, it gets a year and then that's supplemented by around 20 million we probably should have known this before we uh, started talking about the story but as by the by i mean um, it is we'll, very we'll... confusing anyway because uh, uh looking into this i thought that it, i mean it, it's not as straightforward as it seems from the articles that we that i've mentioned um which is what i think the problem is right i, I think that's the, the overwhelming problem and like we were talking about before like the secrecy and the, the lack of transparency is the issue um you know when we say taxpayers money mm. is that just money that's coming from the treasury because if it's money that's just coming to the treasury the, the the crown actually puts more into the country via the crown estate that it takes away surely not because if you're saying that it doubles the wealth of the queen if if in 2018 2019 they made 67 million pounds or, or from the taxpayer and now over the how much is so 879 million per year if that if you take 15 please don't maybe do maths please don't maybe do maths on the podcast 15 percent of 879 million i don't know the exact amount but it's around what 100 million maybe maybe a bit more or maybe so that's already that's quite a dramatic increase to the 67 million in 2018-2019 either way it's a lot of money and i don't know if they should be having it like i say like i say if if after that increase you want to say okay we're now we're now putting way more into the, the crowd or we're giving way more to the, the royal family this number needs to be reduced 100 percent, we can have that conversation yeah. and if you want to move it to that level this is reviewed every what four years i believe by the prime minister the chancellor of the exchequer and the privy councillor to the purse i think that's the official title person that runs the queen's finances um then you know for sure, for sure, have that conversation. But um, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad way of, of, of uh, looking into the or, or managing the Queen's finances and how much money the royal family gets. And I, I actually think it's emboldened in my view that um, the royal family does, in terms of what they own, put more into the far more into the country than, than they take out. Fair enough. Rather than getting into a long debate about the monarchy, let's move on to the next uh, current event. Gibran, did you have anything that you wanted to add quickly? It's not just limited to the Queen, but actually a lot of the the wealth that's uh, in this country is owned owned by people for many generations. Um, And so that's been accumulated over over several generations. That's part of a wider debate of how we begin to uh, 
redistribute that wealth, um, not just the monarchy, and um, they have more attention to their political world, also sort of that long-standing hereditary wealth uh, that's existing. Mm. Mm. I think the best way to do that would actually be a wealth tax. That's another debate. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next current event that we wanted to talk about was uh, the Chechnyan detention of two gay men that happened uh, last week. Um, we've spoken about Chechnya before. Um, we did a podcast with Alex Yo several months ago, um, specifically talking about the situation in, in Chechnya. Yeah. Um, for those who maybe didn't see that uh, or don't know much about Chechnya, they have uh, been oppressing the LGBTQ plus community there for a while. There's been a number of gay purges that have happened. Um, and last week, uh, two gay men who had fled Chechnya uh, a, a year ago were arrested in Moscow and then returned to Chechnya, um, supposedly because they had, or they they were subject, they've been made subject to a terrorism investigation. Um, the rights group that helped them get out of Chechnya said they have no idea why uh, they were detained um, and taken back to Chechnya. Um, they're being held in a detention center um, and according to an aide to the leader of Chechnya who is um, Ramzan Kadyrov uh, the aide admitted sorry the aide said that they had admitted to helping an illegal armed group um, and of, of which the sentence for that is 15 years in prison so it, it's pr- not a stretch of the imagination to probably work out they're not really in the safest hands um, and I hope that they obviously aren't uh, that some kind of resolution can be found but who who knows given Chechnya's history um, what I kind of wanted to sort of touch on what the international on the international response and the fact that there hasn't really been one um, do you I, I don't know what your thoughts are, are on this um, Gibran but uh, do you think that the international community should be coming harder coming down harder on Chechnya either of you yeah definitely I think that is um, it's part of um, the reason why that there hasn't as much attention is because it's part of Russia as a whole yeah it's, it's um it's, it's difficult in an international perspective to uh, single out a particular state of course whole, uh, yeah Russia as a whole but so uh, yeah I think that should be um, I think putting more uh, pressure on, on Russia to uh, um, response to uh, human rights abuses. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's like the main problem within uh, international politics sometimes is that it's easier to do that when it's um, when it's a smaller country that you have you can sanction economically or whatever. When it's Russia, mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to, um, to put pressure on them and with regards to human rights in particular and, and other countries as well, um, yeah. China um, and uh, China and Russia are two, two of these examples where they're quite big countries and you can't really do much about them from an international perspective and the only, the only thing you can really do is to raise awareness uh, um, in, in the West and uh, other countries um, and, and try and sort of help um, help these countries become more um, democratic and more trying to adopt uh, human rights mm. um, than they are already. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, 
once again find ourselves talking about Britain's role in standing up to human rights abusers around the world and we've obviously been following the um, amendment to the trade bill the genocide amendment really closely on our channels and along with our friends yet again and burst the bubble and other um, organizations have been trying to pressure the government and and government uh, backbenchers to support the bill that's you know the second reading go through the house today or not because of the way that the government have uh, blocked it from going through parliament but i digress i think that our position on on this kind of thing has to be stronger um and it hasn't been and the government have have shown an inaction um in standing up to these kinds of human rights abuses and it's a, a chance for us i think coming back to how we want to be seen as a nation and what we want to stand for to say that we will not stand idly by when human rights abuses human rights abuses occur we will do something we will stand up um, and we will not only speak out but we will call for sanctions there are various different ways that that can occur one of the most powerful of which is Magnitsky sanctions which the US have put on certain individuals that have been involved in these abuses um, along with uh, so uh, the UK hasn't I don't think specifically in Chechnya I could be wrong but I know that we have um, done rounds of Magnitsky sanctions on different individuals around the world um, that's fairly fairly easily done if the the UK want to do that and want to um, work with with different groups to do so and they are very powerful um, again it's about us saying that that we won't stand idly by while this happens in terms of the international response as a whole the UN um, I think has proved that it's pr- fairly ineffective in in dealing with these issues you know the, the, the veto power of countries is fairly well known and um, when we look at the China example, Jabron, like you, you raise in terms of recognizing the, the current Uyghur genocide as a genocide, the UN won't do that because China have a veto. Um, and in terms of doing it in, in, in an international court, recognizing the genocide in an international court, China won't recognize the legitimacy of those international courts. So it's very difficult to, um, uh, you know, we're not talking about genocide here necessarily, but um, it's very difficult to hold states to account. In, for the human rights abuses that, that, that they commit. What we can do is, like you say, raise our voices, talk about these issues, lobby your MP. Lobby your MP and tell them that if they do not stand up um, for these for these abused groups, that you will not vote for them. That's the most powerful thing that us as individuals can do. Um, you know, you can and you can do, do so based on, on many roles or many, many issues. Uh, whether it be this one specifically or whether it be uh, the Uyghur crisis or Chinese organ harvesting, there are plenty of stock letters, stock emails that you can either use or copy, um, you know, follow different groups that are talking about this stuff. I, I ask you to, to go and read some of Alex Yeo's work or listen to his appearances on the podcast because Alex is one of the most knowledgeable, knowledgeable people I've ever met, um, in especially in this area, you know, talking about sort of Russian Eurasian politics, specifically the area of Chechnya. He, you know, gave us a lesson essentially when he came yeah. on the podcast yeah. and what was going on. Super fascinating guy. Follow Alex on 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 Twitter and ask him. You know, he's always really receptive to that kind of thing. Learn more about what's going on and and say that you know we we won't be party to this stuff happening because we're aware of it and unfortunately not enough is done. But like I say, we have the opportunity to to be a leading figure in standing up against this stuff around the world if we're willing to do so and if we're confident enough to do so mm. yeah well, uh, thanks mate sorry go on, 
Go on. Um, no, I was just going to say that, I mean, this on top of the sort of Navalny stuff that's been going on, um, I think it, it, it's just, you know, there's an increasing pile of, of uh, reasons for uh, sanctions to be put in place against Russia um, and Russian um, figures. Uh, I, I did just want to point out that there has been some response to Russia. Obviously, there are economic sanctions in place still over the, the annexation of Crimea, I, I believe. But there's uh, I, recently Germany, Sweden and Poland all expelled their Russian diplomats as well, um, which I suppose is a, a start. I don't know if it's necessarily um, much of a thorn in, in Putin's side, but... Um, I th- it would be nice to see more responses from from individual countries uh, to this. I I think, um, and I also saw that um, the US is sending. I want to say troops. It might not have been. It might have been ships to Norway um, as a response against to deter Russia. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, military military action like that. I'm I'm more wary of. Um, I don't know yeah. how impactful that will be, uh, but there are, are things sort of diplomatically and politically that can be done that are more effective, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, there are, there are so many... And that should be done. Yeah, for sure. And in, in, in this, the Magnitsky sanction um, case has been called in the US in terms of Myanmar also. Um so there are plenty of instances around the world that this can be used. We have to figure out better ways that we can um, hold countries that commit these sorts of abuses to account on an international level. The UN needs reform. It isn't working in the way that it was set out. There are plenty of responsibility responsibilities that countries that are part of the UN have that they aren't upholding to. You know, responsibility to protect being one of them. Um, that just aren't working anymore and that conversation needs to be had it's being raised by plenty of youth-led initiatives you know that we've spoken to yet again being you know one of the most prominent um and the fact that it's taking us to to you know speak out and stand up to and 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 call into account these these massive institutions is is a worry to me the fact that politicians aren't doing that is a worry to me but that's our role, you know, that's what we need to be doing. Um, and until that comes, unfortunately, uh, these abuses are going to continue. So um, we we had lots yeah. of politicians, was it uh, last week or the week before on, on Holocaust Memorial Day, um, saying never again, never again shall we see uh, a geno- genocide on this level never again shall we see these kinds of human rights abuses unfortunately that will never be the case until we truly truly stand up um, against countries that are uh, committing these abuses so hopefully we see more more work yes uh, let's quickly jump into quick fire questions as we're a bit low on time um, th- my first question is kind of related um, but try and answer it I guess as quickly as possible um, so it, it is how's the world Sorry, has the world's response to the coup in Myanmar been strong enough? Mm, yes, and no. <laughs> it's difficult, right? It's difficult <laughs> to do these nuanced topics at quickfire. <laughs> as, as I said before, um, it's, it's very difficult to to influence a, um, a different country but, um, from an external perspective, apart from. Um, from going to war, which is not a feasible option. Yeah. Um, 
uh, with regards to sanctions, I think uh, it's, it's 2004, 2011, was it? Um, I had sanctions on it because of the military with, uh, and uh, that was something that helped uh, that motivated this transition to democracy. So maybe reimposing those could work, but at the same time, it's a risk of hurting the people in Myanmar themselves. So it's a really trade off there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, I think me too. It was pretty, uh, <laughs> the question was quite leading, I think. Um, my second one is, do you think returning to a life such as the one before coronavirus is realistic? As in, yes. yes. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say no, I don't think it is. I think too are much you, has happened for too long now. Right. And it doesn't... So are you talking in terms of like the way that we interact yeah. on a societal level like going out and that kind of thing yeah i would say so in terms of uh specifically also the, the uk because uh, i don't want to i think that obviously every country is um has uh, gone through a different experience but i don't think that the uk can go back to uh will ever reach that point again personally especially with how <laughs> quick the virus mutates um and how the yeah, it just seemed because it's more contagious, I think, than the flu because of how it would be incredibly difficult to eradicate, I assume. I mean, I'm not a virologist, so I have no idea, really, but I'm only basing this on what I've read in, in the news um, and how my logical then conclusion to what could happen. But I at least expect things like mask wearing to be more more common um, in the future and perhaps uh other sort of sanitary things to be more um mm. hygiene related things to be more common but right now it seems very difficult for me to imagine a, a world where we're completely everything's reopened as it was maybe it's just me being pessimistic but um it's hard to imagine right now considering it's almost a year now and we're still in lockdown um even with the vaccine rollout going so well it it's still it still uh, worries me a little bit. Or, and I don't know if I necessarily want to go back to a time exactly the same <laughs> either. <laughs> but anyway. Jerome? I mean, it takes uh, a couple of months for the vaccine. I mean, it's a big You need to get to, I think, 80% or above um, for it's having a measurable effect. Uh, so I think, uh, I, don't, I, I mean, uh, maybe if you um, look at the South Africa variant, that's the main problem right now. But I don't think it's going to become the dominant variant scientists are saying uh, no. I think we'll be able to they're not but then variants have been popping up left right and center so <laughs> who knows when the, the the virus will mutate to a point where it can it where it, it, it doesn't um react at all to the to the current vaccine and they're saying that they can't provide a vaccine for the south african variant until autumn at the very earliest so i don't know it's uh, yes, yeah. I've, I've, I think we have incredibly short memories as well. And I think that the minute that we can get some semblance of normality back, you just have to yeah. look at when lockdown was eased, people will want to go back to life as it was beforehand. And I think even if that means that people are still dying of coronavirus or different variants, then that will happen. I think mask wearing, yeah, will probably become more realistic, but um. Or more, more, more common, but um, I, I think and I hope we return to you know at least some sort of semblance of life as it was before. Yeah, 
yeah, definitely. I think we will reach some kind of semblance of it, but I don't think it will. Yeah. I don't think it will be like we remember. I just I always hear people talking about you know, thinking about it as like this sort of utopic time now, and I I think it's kind of it's not really reachable again. Um, That's true. My third question is: Would you be put off? Sorry. <laughs> So you're a bit of a pessimist, Brett. Yes. Well, no, I'm not, <laughs> but, I don't think I am anymore, generally. Sure. But really? <laughs> well, maybe I am. No. I'm a, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Uh, oh, really? Uh, That's what pessimists say when people call them pessimists. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I am that pessimistic. I think I've been fairly optimistic throughout all this, but now it gets it's grinding on me now, and I don't. Yeah. And uh, because it feels like sure. there's always new hurdles, now. Uh, like even when the vaccine rollout is doing so well there's now you know more variants that aren't necessarily responding as well to the vaccine anymore so i yeah. don't know uh, my third question is kind of related it's just um would you be put off by pubs if they were re if they reopened in april and weren't allowed to sell alcohol what's the point i'm a muslim what was that i don't drink alcohol so oh right so then you wouldn't at all <laughs> I mean, uh, I, mean uh, I wouldn't drink alcohol either way, so it's not for me. Fair. I mean, I think pubs are more than just a place to drink alcohol, anyway, aren't they? They're a social uh, uh, a place to go and socialize and to have nice food. Um, more and more so, anyway, in the last few years, um, until this year, obviously. Um, and to and to read Weatherspoon's news, of course, which is my <laughs> personal favorite news outlet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, my fourth <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My fourth question is kind of related to the weather at the moment. Um it's snow, yay or nay. <laughs> Sorry, can you repeat that? I... If snow, yes or no. Would you do you like snow? I I I, I was sort of it's it's only snowed where, where I am for the past two days and I would have said no, I don't want the snow, it's just gonna get in the way of me, you know running or going on a dog walk or whatever however it's been lovely it has been really nice the past couple of days with the snow and i was expecting you to say yeah. that after your falling over incident that you don't like snow anymore <laughs> thanks for bringing that up <laughs> slipping over on a dog walk um but no it doesn't kill my enjoyment of it it's nice yeah it's bit pretty, of variety it? in the weather yeah it's pretty and i think because people aren't going out like aren't having to travel to work or or as much True. it's probably less of a um yeah. a hindrance to people and you can admire it more. Um, makes you think about countries that have to, you know, live through snow for like months on end. Though so, this is something that I've always thought about this country is that like places like Canada that get massive amounts of snow every single year for really prolonged periods of time manage fine, and here there's a like two <laughs> inches of snow on the ground and the whole country shuts off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but there's, we do we do yeah. that in both extremes, don't we? In terms of weather. Yeah. Like yeah, it's just the UK for. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last question is just simply what's the coldest temperature you've experienced where was it as well that's I, a good question I will start and just say that I don't think I've really ever I've never been to any countries that have been super cold so my coldest experience was probably a winter in France where I think it reached about minus 12 but that's probably cold. that's probably not like in comparison to people who live in like Russia or or, or Scandinavia, yeah, it's probably nothing. True. They're probably yeah, laughing at yeah. us. But <laughs> <laughs> what about you guys? 
I'm actually not sure where this uh, I remember being in America once during Wednesday, it was really cold. Mm. Um, but um, I can't remember, I don't remember the temperature, uh, especially because they use Fahrenheit. So oh, yeah. <laughs> Whereabouts was it in America? <laughs> the translation is. Uh, it, was in, um, it was in Maryland. Oh, right. During Wednesday. Nice. Nice. What about you, Jack? Uh, that's, uh, no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no idea. Probably like, when I was skiing. <laughs> been skiing yeah. a few times so maybe when i was skiing but i've got no idea how cold it was um fair enough yeah i was i i, I climbed penny fan in shorts at five o'clock in the morning and that was bloody cold i'm not sure how cold <laughs> it was it was a really bad idea as well it was in the middle of summer and we got up to go and see the sunrise over you know the welsh hillside beautiful um and i wore shorts for whatever reason i climbed it with my girlfriend she had two hoodies on she was lovely and warm i got to the top and was absolutely freezing, but I'm not actually sure what the temperature was. Um, it probably was wasn't that cold. From... It's probably like yeah. no, probably not. 12 degrees. No. <laughs> There's a picture of my face on my Instagram page. So sort of we're halfway down and uh, I look incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> but the view was great, so it was worth it. Cool. Well, that's that was my last question. So th- thank you for, for joining us today, uh, Jabran. It's very interesting. Yeah, cheers. It's been great talking to you. Thank yeah. you uh, obviously, uh, make sure to like and subscribe. Uh, I, again, have not forgotten to say that. Um, Good man. Jibran, <laughs> where can people follow you? Yes. If they want to. Uh, follow me on Twitter. At, uh... oh, you kind of cut out then, but I think we can we'll put it in the description if people didn't hear. Yeah, Twitter, 2015JMR. Cool. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we'll put it in the description and as Bruce said. Yes. Great. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for for watching and listening wherever you you view our podcast um, and uh, expect another one next week. See you then. Cheers. Bye.